Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning, and so we pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. For those who are facing the very worst, there is good news. Hear these words from Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and so she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they were in the land about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died. And so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. And so she set out from where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, both of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may both find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. The word of the Lord Thanks be to God. For those sojourning in Moab, for those who find themselves facing the very worst of times in their lives, there's good news. The book of Ruth shows us incredible good news for those who find ourselves sojourning in Moab, facing the very worst. And the good news we find in this book as we spend the next few weeks unpacking it together. What we find in the book of Ruth, we find throughout the whole of the scriptures, we find at the heart of the gospel is that even in the very worst, the Lord is at work. And he's at work wondrously. Yes, we can say wondrously at work in the midst of the very worst. And how can we know that? How can we say that? Such audacity to say that God is at work wondrously in the midst of the very worst. We can say it because that's who God is. That's who God has revealed himself to be. See, this book is the very worst opening. This, this book opens worse than any other book in Scripture. 
Even the book of Job doesn't begin this badly. Verse one, we're told that this is the time when the judges ruled, which means anarchy. We're told at the end of Judges chapter 21, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Total social civic anarchy and add to that a famine. There was a famine in the land. It's interesting that we're told in verse two that it's a family from Bethlehem that goes to sojourn in Moab. It's interesting in a horribly ironic way because Bethlehem means house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. So these Bethlehemites go from the house of bread where there is no bread to Moab. Moab, the place that refused to give Israel bread. What Moab is infamous for, among other things, I'll get there in a moment, is that when Israel was coming out of Egypt and they came to the borders of Moab, they said, let us buy water and bread. And the king of Moabites said, the Moabites said, absolutely not. And as a result in Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Moabites were rejected from the assembly of the Lord for 10 generations because they refused, as God says, to give you bread when you were coming out of Egypt. So the house of bread has no bread. And so let's go to the land that traditionally has given us no bread. That's how bad it is. And just to get a sense of how bad it is for an Israelite to be living, sojourning in Moab, Moab is kind of the worst of nations. Their origins, the origin of Moab, Genesis 19. The origin of the nation is Lot's incest with his daughters. I mean, you couldn't really begin a nation in a worse way. And then, of course, there's Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. as, As Balaam, remember the prophet who had the talking donkey? Some of you just woke up. The prophet with a talking donkey. Well, he was brought by the king of Moab to curse Israel and everything that came out of his mouth ended up being a blessing instead. That happened. Numbers 25, we're told that the Moabite women had this particular ability to get Israelite males to stop worshiping the Lord and start worshiping the Baals. And finally, there was just recently a war with Moab in Judges chapter three, where Eglon and Ehud were at war with each other. And so this is the context of Moab, and therefore it is the absolute worst place you could imagine for an Israelite to be sojourning and looking for bread. And it is rather ironic that verse 2 says the man's name was Elimelech, which means God is my king. Sort of depressingly ironic, like really? It's like naming your three-legged dog Lucky. Where is your king? And of course, what happens? Death happens, verse three. The patriarch of the family dies, leaving the two sons. They marry Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And again, we can think those prohibitions about, you know, marrying within other nations within Israel, they seem rather old fashioned. The reason that that was considered a problem was exactly what I said a moment ago, that Israelite men had a tendency to go back and follow the ancestral gods of their wives. So if they were marrying out of other nations, you could assume that they were going to wander away from the Lord. So not only is the patriarch dead, the sons of married Moabite women, who are obviously pagans from another religion, and then the sons die, and this is all that's left. It is the worst beginning of a book. 
And I'm so thankful that our Bible includes such hard stories. Because it shows us that the faith that we are being called to is not some kind of fair weather faith that is meant to just stand when things are going well. But instead, the faith we are invited into is one that stands under the worst of times, the very worst that we can imagine. You know, as we go to Rwanda next year, taking our first pilgrimage, we announced last week that we're taking applications this month for those who want to come with us on a pilgrimage to Rwanda in January. We do lots of things when we're there. We take you to churches and to schools that have been built through our funding. We get to see the amazing mission of what God is doing in Rwanda. But part of the trip will also be going to the genocide memorial, visiting the genocide memorial. That's why we put it on the application form to say, you know, this is part of the trip. Be prepared. And we go there, we have to remember that despite this vibrant nation that is so brimming with the gospel, it was only a few short years ago in 1994 that 900,000 Rwandans were killed mostly by their next door neighbors. And when we go to the genocide memorial, my hope is that we'll have Eric show us the memorial, tour us through the memorial. Because I'd been to the memorial several times, and then when I was there just last year, the archbishop said, Paul, you shall have Eric take you to the memorial. I said, archbishop, I've been to the memorial. I know the memorial. I understand the memorial. What an arrogant thing for a Westerner to say. But I said, I, 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 you know, I've been to the memorial. He said, no, Eric's going to go with you. And I said, I'm fine. He said, Eric's going with you. I said, yes, archbishop. So Eric went with me. And he, he showed up and I said, oh, Eric, you know, it's, it's okay. You know, if you want to go to the coffee shop, I've been here before. I'm going to show my two daughters through. And he said, no, he said, you don't understand. The archbishop sent me to take you through the genocide memorial because I'm a genocide survivor. Eric's my age. He watched his family murdered in front of him when he was a teenager. And so he walks you through the memorial. And what's most amazing is not just the horrors of it, but at the end that he will describe his own personal faith working through reconciliation, becoming a pastor. It's not just that he's a genocide survivor. He's a pastor of one of the churches that we built there. He's got a wife. He's got children. He's brimming with faith and joy. And I look at this and say, the gospel must work in every situation or it works in no situations. The gospel has got to be true in the worst of times or it's not going to be true in any of our times. And this is what the gospel does. Speaks in to our sojourns in Moab. I mean, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad in that day, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This book begins in the very worst place imaginable. You know that place, at least many of you do. And that is exactly where the gospel can begin to do its work.
Because what Ruth shows us is that even in the worst moments, God is at work. And not just at work, he is wondrously at work. Yes, I know, it's audacious to make such a claim. Look at verse 6. Ruth arises to return from Moab because she hears in Moab that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. And you can think, oh great, a sign of God's goodness finally arrives. Finally, Lord, you show up working. But here's why I say it's wondrous what God is doing. It's wondrous because God does not begin his work in this story in verse six, when the bread and the food arrives. God begins his work all the way through right from the beginning, right through the worst of this. He's at work. He's moving silently, quietly, subtly. You know, the thing about the book of Ruth is we see in this no burning bushes or angelic visitors, but instead we see the clear hand of God moving in ordinary, subtle, but clearly profound ways. God at work, even in the hardest of moments. The challenge we face is that we don't see God's hand at work always in the moment. We, we think we sometimes see it, but we often get it wrong. What's amazing about Naomi as we continue through the story is Naomi doesn't realize the gift that God has already given her before the food arrives back in Israel. She doesn't realize the gift that has already been given her in the midst of her worst moments. For, as we'll see next week in verse 21 of chapter 1, Naomi will say of God in her bitterness, I went out full and the Lord brought me back empty. In other words, I left Israel with everything and the Lord brought me back with nothing. And here's the amazing thing. You know, spoiler alert, we're gonna jump to the end. In chapter four, the women will gather in Israel around Naomi and they will say of Ruth, she means more to you than seven sons. She can't see yet the gift that is right in front of her, that the Lord has given her in the midst of this horrible situation. And so it is with us. You know, often when we're going through difficult times, Christians are ready to spout Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for the good. And it's true, but we need to recognize two things, first of all, about Romans 8, 28. Whenever we're going through suffering and we think, okay, God causes all things, all things, yes, I believe all things to work together for the good, that God in the midst of our very worst moments is wondrously at work. Two things we need to remember. Number one, what scripture is saying, actually, it's never asking. In fact, I would argue it forbids us to suggest that the bad things that happen are good. What God is not saying is this death is a good thing or this famine is a good thing. Oh, you know, it was just ultimately a good thing. No, you're not called nor even allowed to call these evil things good. For in fact, God says in Isaiah chapter five, woe to those who call evil good and good evil and take bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's not that these things are to be called good or seen as good in and of themselves, but that God is working all things together for his good. 
But secondly, remember this when we consider that God is wondrously at work in the midst of the very worst moments, that God is causing all things to work together for the good, that we are called to trust this truth, but not be trite about it, nor triumphalistic about it. You know, as a pastor, I get some, I get all kinds of conversations come my way. Uh, some folks will regularly try to tell me what God is up to in the world. And I mean with like absolute certainty, like I read this headline and see this is what God is doing, or this is what's happening and therefore, and I always find it fascinating to say, yeah, maybe, maybe that's what God is doing, but you probably have it half wrong or three quarters wrong. We don't know what God is in fact doing in this moment. You don't know how God is working this together. The trouble with Romans 8:28 is it only is visible in hindsight for the most part that we can look back and see how God is ultimately bringing these things together. And therefore, there is a requirement for us to have a little more gospel humility of saying, I trust that God is at work. I'm not exactly sure how, but I believe that what he's doing is wondrous and will be good. You know, the last six months for Monica and our family, having her shattered, her leg, and all of the surgeries and months in wheelchair and then beginning to walk in physical therapy. You know, I sat with a person just the other day and I get asked what I always get asked, which I appreciate, you know, how, how's everything with, with Monica and your family? And I began to do the typical thing of saying, well, you know, it's, it's, it's great. You know, the, God is so faithful and amazing. And, and I stopped myself and I said, you want the truth? And I said, yeah. And I said, it's really hard. I said, we see God at work. We know God is at work, but we're not sure how. I'm not going to tell you. I can imagine the specific good he's bringing out of this. I know it is good. I know he's at work. But right now, it's actually just really, really hard. As 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God is at work, and I will say wondrously, but we don't always know exactly how. Then you may say rightly, well, then how can you know? Maybe this time it won't be wondrous, right? How can you know that God is at work and it will be wondrous, it will be good? And the answer is only found in the fact that that is who God is. That is who he has revealed himself to be. And he reveals himself so clearly to be such a God in this book of Ruth. In chapter, verse one, chapter one, verse eight, Ruth uses a little throwaway word when she's sending off her daughters-in-law. And it's a key word that's gonna come back again and again throughout the book of Ruth. It's the Hebrew word hesed. She says, she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. And that word kindly, hesed, means deal with you steadfastly, according to his covenant, according to his long-suffering love. 
That, that word chesed means that God at his very core is always faithful, always merciful. It's the basis of where we say in Lamentations chapter three, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The God who is revealed in scripture again and again is not capricious. He is covenantal. He doesn't go back and forth on his word. He's faithful. And even Paul will go on to say in 2 Timothy that when we are faithless, which we will be at times, he is faithful. For he cannot deny himself. That the very character and nature of our God is the one who is always steadfast, long-suffering in his love for us. And you may say, how can we know that? He doesn't just tell us. He shows us. He shows us and proves to us his character, his steadfast, long-suffering love for us. For in verse 8, again, I love how you see everything in scripture pointing to Jesus. As Augustine said, the old is in the new revealed and the new is in the old concealed. You see it all coming together as Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, it all points to me. For in verse eight, listen carefully to what the writer of Ruth says. Verse six, sorry. Naomi heard while in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Visited his people. It's very clear language. Visited his people and given them food. He'd come down to them to provide what they needed in the midst of their famine. Don't you see that every other religion, every other worldview will tell you and I when we are facing suffering and the worst moments, either that it's your fault like you did this, you weren't enough, you didn't do enough, and here's the next plan or program or purchase you can follow and it'll get better. Or you'll say, actually, it's someone else's fault and then you'll spend your life trying to blame the whole world and burn it all down in anger. Or they'll just say, guess what, it's inevitable. You know, this is just the way this broken world works. So you better get used to learning how to live with the darkness and learn to thrive in the dark. It is only in our scriptures that we're told when we are sojourning in Moab that God comes down and meets us there. God enters into our famine, into our need, and meets us right there. John chapter six, oh, how I love to tell the gospel. Jesus says, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread, here's the proof, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. God has put on display for the powers and principalities and every person who's ever walked this earth just how steadfast he is. He has proven it to us. He's shown us his steadfast, non-ending, long-suffering love, even when it means the death of his own son for us. How do we know that God is wondrously at work in the worst moments? 
What wondrous love is this? O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. God has proven it. As Romans 8 says earlier than the passage we just read a few moments ago, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him give us everything else? All things. You know, I, I, I close with this, that I've told the story before. I like how Spurgeon says, if it's not worth telling a hundred times, it's not worth telling once. Story of Alan Gardner, naval officer, turned English missionary in the mid-19th century. Traveling with a group of missionaries, got down to the southern tip, the very southern tip of South America. And they got stranded, and the supplies were running low, and because of breakdown in communication and storms, the supply ship never showed up in time. And they knew they were dying. They knew they were going to die there on that beach. And about a year later, they found Gardner's body on the beach and his journal was with him. And the last words written in his journal were these words. He was quoting Psalm 34, verse 10, saying, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then in his own words, with shaky writing of a dying, starving man, he writes... I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. How, in the face of something that bad, facing the very worst, could he say that he senses the goodness of God? Because he knew the heart of the gospel is seen and proven in the cross of Christ. He had seen the proof of God's goodness and believed even to the end. You know, as we're going to see next week as we unpack the story more, some of us will let our circumstances define the character of God. But others will allow the character of God to define our circumstances. For God demonstrates his love for us, demonstrates, displays it, that while we were yet sinners, Christ came down, visited his people, and gave them bread, dying for us. It's the reason why the Lord brings us back to worship each and every week. As he brings us in, we've all had different kinds of weeks. Some of us are currently living in Moab. Some of you are sojourning there right now. Some of you maybe were and have just come out of that season saying, thank the Lord I'm no longer there. Some are worried it might begin tomorrow. But regardless of where we are, the Lord brings us into his house in worship 
and lays before us a meal. A meal that stands as the declaration of the proof of his goodness and his love and his steadfast commitment to you and I. And each and every week we partake so that each and every week we can remember because we may not in this moment be able to see in our own circumstances the goodness of God, but we will see declared in this table the goodness of God each and every week for us. For those living in Moab, for those facing the very worst, there is good news. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.